Ladies and gentlemen, live from the gleaming streamlined studios of Outlaw Radio's world headquarters in the hills of Encino, <laughs> the following program, True Crime Uncensored, is produced with a vengeance by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network and heard live worldwide on all sorts of places, including Error FM, your iPhone, your iPod, your Droid, the fillings in your teeth. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man in the lawyer chair, Don Waldman. I don't know what to do your broadcast. Um, <laughs> you hear microphones breaking up there. So I've Yeah, hit that thing. Yeah, I told you it was gleaming state-of-the-art equipment here. But it works. Yeah. <laughs> here comes Matt. He knows everything. Damn it. Ah, damn it. Hey. No way to start. No way to start an award-winning radio show. Don't don't mess with that. Amy will have to slap you around. All right. <laughs> of course, that may be part of the program. I think it's okay now. Hey, we're wonderful. Up. We have quite a lineup today. Yeah, we're going to learn why I'm not married to a Jewish woman. <laughs> oh. <laughs> nice Jewish boys learn early that uh, there's nothing like having a chicks in the closet. <laughs> I think that's the moral of the story, isn't it? Uh, I don't know if Peter Christ is Jewish or if he married a Jewish girl, but uh, he was a narc. And uh, he's with us today. We have Amy Dresner, who is still Jewish and a uh, former meth addict. True, and a true. stand-up comic. And we said you used to be a whore, but I don't know if that's true That's or not. not true at all. Okay, she didn't used to be a whore. I'm still a whore. <laughs> Glad we got that clear. No, 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 I never was a whore. No. Well, my husband disagrees, but it's all relative. You know what I mean? Well, you're related to him, so it is relative. In fact, we have your husband here also. Hello. Yeah. Hi, husband. He's got his fingers in his ears. Yeah, he's no fool. Right. Uh, <laughs> Peter, Peter, you there, pal? Yeah, I'm here. Hey! Hey, Mr. Leap, how are (laughs) you? Well, ready to leap forward, as always. It's been a couple years since we had you on the show, but uh, you get a lot of coverage there in the archives. Uh, Back in the days when you were a narc, you probably would have arrested Amy Dresner, not for her comic performances. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that remains to be seen, I guess. (laughs) But uh, Amy was... uh, well, you know, she's very familiar with drugs, aren't you, Amy? Yeah, I am. Yeah, there is a certain snobbery among drug users, isn't there? Snobbery? Abs- yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, I've been in quite a few rehabs, and I think it's interesting that people are snobby about what drugs they did. Like, even in rehab, I found that. You know, people are like, oh, I did coke, but, you know, I never touched meth. Meth's ghetto. It's like, uh, you're still in fucking rehab, one, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, like... Meth is just more efficient than Coke, people. You know what I mean? Coke gets you high for eight minutes. Meth gets you high for eight days. Come on, you know? Let's Whoa. save some fucking and, money. It's a recession. And also, when you're buying it at an illegal marketplace, you don't know what you're putting up your nose. Oh, when you're oh, okay. Peter, or you whatever. have no idea how true that is. I got actually a really, really severe infection in my face, and my whole face blew up. It was bad. It was really bad. And that's yeah, you, don't, you don't have that problem with legal marketplaces, see? Because if a legal marketplace does that, to you, you know who to sue. Yeah, you can call a Better Business Bureau uh, instead yeah. of Raul. But a legal marketplace uh, assumes... Spider. <laughs> a legal marketplace assumes that you're going to educate middle America into the fact that such horrible drugs like marijuana, which are classified <laughs> as major drugs in the federal system, aren't. Well, that that is something that we have to deal with. The thing is that we have two situations in this country that we call one. And that's the drug problem. We hear about an overdose someplace, and we say that's the drug problem. Then we hear about a drive-by shooting someplace that's reported to us as a drug-related shooting, and we say that's part of the drug problem. In reality, we have two separate problems. The drug problem, the use and abuse of these drugs, is going to be with us as long as two things exist on this planet. 
drugs and human beings. There's, there's always going to be a drug problem, and we're going to have to deal with that forever. On the other hand, that drive-by shooting, that violence on the Mexican border, that's not the drug problem. That's the drug policy problem. And we can change that, just like we did with alcohol policy back in 1933. Peter, you have a great statement that prohibition created Al Capone. We had Al Capone's niece on the air last week. And uh, she said, you know, everything good dear old Uncle Al was providing was just what the people wanted. Right, it was warm and fuzzy Al Capone last week. Yeah, well, very, very, <laughs> there's a picture in that book of Al Capone dressed as Santa with her sitting on his lap. <laughs> I believe in the tooth fairy, too. <laughs> but, well, uh, it's, it's interesting when you talk about that, because we, we used to call it victimless crime. I, could, I we mm. prefer the term consensual crime. Mm. And that is an act that happened between consenting adults that they want to do with each other. I want to sell you drugs, you want to buy my drugs. How is drugs. that any different for prostitution, really? It is absolutely no right. different than prostitution. Exactly the same situation. Gambling, exactly the same situation. You're the, the thing is, when you don't like these things, when society doesn't like these things, and they choose to use the criminal justice system to deal with them, what you in fact do is create more crime and violence in your society. Because it, the activity is not going to stop it, it's just going to go underground. Well, but Peter, don't we have a I drug agree. war going on, a war against drugs? Isn't no, it's a thing? war against uh, minorities, I thought. I... <laughs> well, it's a war against people, and it's our own people at the war. No, I'm talking about the United States program, War on Drugs. You don't buy into it? I sure well, don't. Well, no, I don't buy into it. I thought it was stupid when it started, and I was on the job when it mm, started. Mm. So it, it, this is not the way to deal with this problem. What you have to do is you deal with the drug problem through the best methods you know how, and that's education and providing health care for people. And you deal with the uh, violence problem by ending the underground marketplace, by turning off the tap, and then you get, to, you get to regulate and control the drug marketplace. And whether you choose the government to do the regulation like we do with the other drugs, or whether you choose the general industry, like we do with herbal drugs. We don't really have a government control over that. We let them self-regulate themselves. Any one of those systems is better than a prohibitionary marketplace. Well, what people forget is the drug war in Mexico is over distribution to the United States. Exactly, exactly. We're the big consumer here. You know, it's interesting. I heard somebody say to me, well, if we legalize marijuana, that they say that'll put 60% cut in the drug cartels money according to the un the international underground drug marketplace is a 500 billion dollar a year industry. oh the corruption techniques must be right. wonderful in that right oh yeah with that much money running around tell me the last tell me the last time you read about a police corruption case that didn't involve either drugs gambling or prostitution there's too uh, much money involved that's why and it's cash Exactly. Well, I always exactly. heard that if you read about a big bust, it was the cops getting rid of the competition. Well, that, that's, that's part of it. In fact, we know from recent investigations on stuff that went on up in Boston and stuff, is they used to, they used to snitch on their competitors so that they would get busted so they could secure their own marketplace. Well, we, but we cre the thing is, we create this. We choose this policy as a nation, and we can unchoose it. One of my favorite stories was I was up on a case up in Fresno, and while I was up there, they had a multi-million dollar cocaine bust, all of which was stolen out of the evidence locker of the police. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, that, that big French connection bust, that, no, that yeah. all went back it, into the market. Where, where is that now? Well, we can't find it. I lived in right. New Orleans for 10 years, and it was just the police shooting each other on the corners, and they'd 
reported openly in the newspaper, and uh, you know the sheriff there, they used to make like seven thousand. I'm sorry, eleven thousand five hundred dollars a year. And then they're surprised that they're protecting gang ter- territory for selling drugs. Just you know, amazing. Now, now you, excuse me, Molly. We introduce yourself. So oh, yeah, you I'm know. sorry. I'm Andrew. I'm Amy's uh, servient husband. Subservient. <laughs> <He's, laughs> you know, you're like you have subs and doms. Yeah. No, but Andrew, you've you 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 know you own rehabs and you've been CEOs of rehabs. Tell you know what do you think about uh, you know treatment of addicts? I'm I think Isn't I'm like one works? of the rare sort of treatment professionals is actually more of a libertarian. So I tend to agree with everyone here that you know we should have an open you know uh, policy, some regulation. You know, obviously there's some control and quality control that's good. Yeah, quality control is always the big issue for me. Yeah, I mean you know <laughs> well you don't want people overdosing really? if you can help it. And then you know I actually am moving towards where they are in Europe where there's a harm reduction model where it's about uh, you know trying to reduce the what they call externalities of drug use so if somebody gets HIV or drunk driving for example you know so you have zero tolerance for you know, uh, behavior that affects other people, but if it affects them directly, then you just try and intervene and try to lower the secondary consequences. Well, that's that's the thing. Is we first off, just so we're clear, and this is not a leap position, but I'm just telling you my own position on this: addiction is not a disease; it's a choice. Mm. And in fact, and I think we have to start dealing with that and mm. empowering the addict. Well, but I think it starts out as a choice and becomes an There addiction. we go. I think yeah. that's, that, that's actually what the, the studies show that, uh, you know, you start using, but once you've been exposed to Your brain a process or toxins, there's I, an I addictive process. I understand all that, right. and, I, and I agree with all that, and I think the studies are wonderful. Tell me one other disease that you can choose not to have. Lung cancer. No, that you no, don't you, choose not no, to have that. No, my uncle died of lung cancer. He never smoked and was never even around anything uh, cancer. Who was, the, who was the comedian? Died at 30 years old with lung cancer. Um, you can uh, take any case example, but the, this well, pointing but back point, to harm my, reduction is my that... Point is, my, point, my point is simple. Right. If you're a recovering addict, you are choosing every day not to use. That's the definition of recovery. True. Okay. And the point is we have to put more emphasis on that choice. Now, do people, when they get into addictive behavior, do they become less able to deal with those choices in their life? Yes, and that's why they need support systems behind them to get them through that step. But the reality is that I think we create a huge misnomer because what we do is when we call it a disease, we blame the drug for the addiction. And in reality, it is the. Per- I had a heroin addict come up to me, and he said at a Rotary Club about five years ago, and he said, "I'm a recovered heroin addict." I said, "Oh, how's your recovering? Go- how's your recovery going?" He said, "I'm recovered." Yeah, I said, well. "Well, I thought there was no such thing as recovered." And he said, "Let me tell you what it is. Recovery is thinking that heroin was your problem." Recovered is when you understand that heroin wasn't your problem, you were the problem, and you took yourself to heroin, and it seemed to help in the beginning, but then it made the problem worse. And he said that's what recovered meant to him. Well, whatever because, works. Well, there's a yeah. lot of retards out there, too. So. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, yeah. That sounds very 12-step. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's an awful lot of people who go into rehab multiple, multiple times. It becomes a lifestyle Peter, choice. you yeah. could say it's a choice, but then why are there genetic markers for it? Why does it run in families? Well, that's your well, true alcohol. There may, I know. Be, there may be predispositions. Uh, absolutely like, there are. Just you know? like there, just like there, I don't, and I don't doubt that, just like there is 
to cancer and heart disease and things like that. Then we also have the issue of chemical dependence. I always thought if you really want to see a spike in crime related to drugs, make insulin illegal. Right, and exactly. I, exactly, I assure exactly. you, every diabetic is going to be out there knocking over to 7-Eleven. Because, you know, uh, now just using myself as a peculiar example, and I am a peculiar example, I had a TBI when I was a kid. That stands for traumatic brain injury. That, I, that explains a lot, Yeah, it sure Pearl. does. And uh, my brain kind of rewired itself in an interesting pattern. <laughs> uh, however, uh, there were just some parts that didn't quite work right. Uh, fortunately, they have come up with medications. Uh, the medication, Not enough for you, bro. Not enough for me. <laughs> however... It's uh, heroin in this case. No, it's not. It's exactly the opposite. I have to take, by prescription, massive amounts of stimulants. And the older I get, the more stimulants I have to oh, take. Oh, you're so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Except I, need, I need a TV on. Head. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm Unfortunately, Grab the hammer. <laughs> yeah, we'll whack in there with a crowbar before the show's over. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't get me high. It just keeps me normalized yeah, yeah, instead yeah, of being asleep the all the time. Yeah, now, if someone else thing. were to take what I take by prescription, we'd have to tie a you know a string around their foot. <laughs> you know, they'd be in the Macy's parade. Uh, we'll my, talk later. My theory being is that if it's something you need as a medication, whether it's insulin or colchicine, if you have the gout or the medications I take, the gout. Is this 1900? <laughs> People still do have the gout. They have to take a medication for it. There's Carl two Col- in this room. <laughs> Called Colsacine. Peter, I, I got to ask you 20 years as a police captain, what turns you into law enforcement against prohibition? Well, to be honest with you, just so you know what kind of a hypocrite you're talking to. <laughs> That's what I want to hear. Um, I, I, got into, I only got into police work for one reason, and that is when I, joined the Na- when I joined the Navy for the 20-year retirement, I realized after a couple days that that wasn't a good choice for me. And then I got out of the Navy, and uh, I'm a Vietnam-era veteran, by the way, not a Vietnam War veteran. And when I got out of the Navy, I was still wanted a 20-year retirement, so I started looking around, and it was either police work or firework. And to be honest, I was brought up in a wonderful, loving family, so I didn't need to be loved, so there was no reason to be a firefighter. So I became a police officer. I figured I could, I could stand being hated. My problem was that when I was about 20, 21 years old, I had become very, thanks to the untouchables, and my parents who were young teenagers and young adults during alcohol prohibition, um, I became very interested in that period of time, and I read a lot about it. And when I got to be about 20, 21 years old, I realized why prohibition didn't work, and that was because it was a stupid idea from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, but you're in a position where you're enforcing it. Yeah, and, well, and then I took a job where my job was to enforce these laws. So what I did was, when I took the job, I had a little talk with myself, and I said, look at everything you know about this is theory. Um, you're going to be in this business now. Put all your thinking on the back burner and give this a fair shot. So I went into the job, and I looked at it, and by the time I was on the job four years, I realized I was right when I walked in the door, that this was, this was the only aspect of my job, arresting people for drugs, that no matter how many we arrested, it didn't make any difference. Absolutely. When we arrested a burglar we saw a decrease in the number of burglaries we would have in our community. We would have a series of bank robbers. Somebody would arrest the bank robber, and the bank robberies would stop for a while. We made drug arrests, and it was like we were never there. So from that point on, for the next 16 years on the job, I started speaking internally. I still did my job, because my father used to say that you decide you're going to do something before you take the man's money. 
Once you've taken the money, you're not deciding if you're going to do it anymore. Now you have to do it. You have to do it well because you're putting your name on it. So I did my job because that's what I was paid to do. But I knew that it was pointless. And as soon as I retired in 1989, I, in fact, I had to talk about a month before my retirement with a good attorney friend of mine, a former prosecutor up in Erie County, New York. And uh, he said to me, what are you going to do when you retire? I said, I'm going to get involved in drug policy reform. We're doing so much damage to this society with this policy. We have to end it. And he said to me, well, if you want to be effective doing that, you're going to have to get yourself arrested. And I said, <laughs> and, and I said to him, I'm going to prove you wrong on that. <laughs> well, also, you have another issue that nobody seems to talk about, and that's the safety of law enforcement themselves involving these drug arrests. In fact, I, I do the work I do now. What, how I view it is to help my brothers and sisters in law enforcement to get out of this. In fact, I've had law enforcement people come up to me after presentations and say, on the side, not publicly, keep up the good work, you're absolutely right, get us out of this. Because they realize the damage, not only the damage that it does, just the threat of the violence, but the damage it does to the police officer's working relationship with the citizens. When you're in investigating what people are doing privately in their in their own back room, they don't want to talk to you, even if you're looking for the burglar oh, in the boy, I'll tell you, you know, Peter, we had a situation in Washington State, and I wrote a book about it, which is still available, called Body Count, about the Spokane serial killer. Oh, and, that sounds like a plug, bro. It was. Uh, I'm no fool. And he was, bump, he was bumping off uh, these chicks that all ran in the same little crack crew, right? Mm -hmm. And what the cops very cleverly figured out to do is they went to the working girls on the street and the dealers on the street, and he said, don't panic. We're not here to arrest you. We're not even right. going to search you. Listen, there is someone killing crack hose, basically, right? Selling, selling it, doing it, whatever it is that is irrelevant compared to murder. Right. We don't, you know, here's our card. This is who's missing. And we're not going to even say, I won't arrest you today when they mean they'll arrest you tomorrow. We're not, you know, we're going to, we don't care about that. We're just focused on one thing, and that's catching the killer. And because they were able to a great effort form relationships with the working women on the street and the drug dealers on the street, they finally caught the guy. Exactly. He was killing people also in Pierce County. They weren't smart enough to take that tact. Well, the, the, that is the problem. I got into law enforcement, and I was taught in the basic training and everything else that what our job in law enforcement was, was to protect people from each other. It was never explained to me that it was my job to protect people from their own best interests. Mm. Okay. <laughs> now we're back to victimless crimes again. You know, one of the exactly. things, though, you got to look at it, and, and I, I'm for legalization of drugs. Uh, I think they still need to be regulated, but um, it won't come without consequences. When you expose the population to a large amount of substances that do cause problems, and meth, for example, is much more serious of a drug than even cocaine, and I see a lot of drug-induced psychosis coming into my treatment centers. But so, would you say that most of that psychosis is not so much from the drugs? doing this on studies in Japan, is that it's not the meth that makes them crazy, it's that they don't sleep. Well, it's the oh, use it's of the drug, and then it triggers the psychosis. And so whether it's the drug or the person or whatever, if you expose the population to more meth, you're going to have more psychosis. So you have to have a policy, public a public policy, that's also going to address those issues. You have to provide care, because otherwise you're going to have a bunch of psychotic people running around causing well, problems as well. So let's, I'll give you a perfect example. We did, two, uh, we did two things in 1933. One was brilliant. We ended alcohol prohibition. And the other one was profoundly <laughs> stupid, and that was we embarked on almost a 50-year journey of pretending we didn't have an alcohol problem. 
I'll give you a perfect example of that. I came on the police department in 1969, February of 1969. I made my first DWI arrest in 1971. Wow. Two years after I came, and when I brought that person back into the station, I took heat from my fellow officers. They said things to me like, well, you drink too. What are you bothering that poor slob for? That, that was the attitude. In Where the was he when I needed him? <laughs> and, then, and then in the late 70s, a little group started up in America called MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And the first ones they went after was my profession. And they said, do your job. Well, that's when and the arrest since, started going up. And, exactly. And since then, we've drastically reduced the number of people that die due to... DWI accidents on the street. We've saved lives. We've dealt very differently with alcohol. We don't drink like they do on Mad Men anymore. <laughs> you know, that was the 50s and the 60s. I don't want to see us legalize drugs tomorrow and then go on a 40-year bender pretending we don't have a drug problem. And, and there's, another, there's another major issue involving our very judicial system, and that's got to do with you going to any arraignment court. Huh. It sounds like 70 to 80 percent of the people that are making pleas are in drug-related crimes. Right. And this is consuming an enormous amount of judicial exactly. time and expense and going in circles because they have all kinds of rehab programs and ways of getting around it, but it's consuming time and expense. And the therapeutic state where and they can't afford it. Where I don't know in California or some others where uh, you're sentenced, sentenced to rehab, and if you relapse, then you get to go to jail. So yeah. it's just... Uh, well, and, no, and, relapse, they, they and, relapse, and relapse is a part of the process of recovery. It's yeah, part I mean, of the process. It's expected for there to be relapses. But we're going to we're going to rel we're going to relapse for sixty seconds, Peter, and uh, uh, we'll be back after tie it off right after this message. So uh, hang on. All right. Some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. Hi, I'm Johnny Cosmo, author of The Catcher in the Rye and The Player's Guide to Playing. Hey, listen to this. If you own an iPhone and a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you're no longer tied to your computer, and I know a thing or two about getting untied. You're now free to roam and take the outlaw radio gang everywhere 
there you go. So grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application. The smoke and drink and interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends on Outlaw Radio. That's right, the demons of decadence. Change the way you listen to radio seven days a week. Now available free at the iTunes App Store. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. I am the legendary Burl Bear, man, the lawyer chair, Don Waldman. We have with us live in the Lighten Up Lounge, Amy Dressner, former uh, meth addict, who now is a stand-up comic. And I've actually seen her perform, and she's actually quite amusing. I find that a very unusual transition, by the way. Yeah, how did you do that, Amy? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Honestly, I got clean, and uh, I really had no life skills. I'd been fired from every job I'd ever had, and I thought, what am I going to do? How long were you an addict? Uh, on and off for probably 15 years. Wow. I'd had like seven years sobriety, and then I'd relapse. I'd been in rehab quite a few different times. I tried, many, you know, I thought meth didn't work for me, so I tried shooting coke like a lady. That didn't really work out. <laughs> you know, I tried different things. But, uh, you know, I really was like, what am I going to do with my life? And I thought, well, what are my skills? What's my history? Let's look at this. And I was like, well, dysfunctional relationships, you know, drug addiction, depression, comic, of course. Oh, my God. <laughs> so. well, you, you must it writes itself. <laughs> You must have hit bottom in order to come up. What was your bottom? Oh, God. I had a couple. I mean, the one with meth, I was a meth addict in my uh, in my mid-20s, and um, I never was arrested. I did deal meth very briefly just to support my own habit, and um, what got me sober was the fact that I was starting to really lose my mind and starting to... You know, I woke up, I went and walked into a market and I woke up in a rehab. I mean, I woke up in an ambulance and the, the lady said to me, she said, uh, did you, you know, we think you had a seizure. Did you do any drugs tonight? Uh-oh. And I said, obviously some really shitty ones. <laughs> <laughs> here I am, you know. Uh, so did you wake up in a psych ward? You know, uh, I've done that too. Uh, that was just, that was only like a year and a half ago. Um, yeah, I had a, I have epilepsy now from all the meth abuse. From all the drugs wow. I've done, I have a uh, full grand mal like epilepsy, and wow. um, those could be real entertaining during sex, right? Uh, yeah, that doesn't actually happen with it. Where. Yeah, um, but you know, when I was uh, doing coke, I'd have a lot of seizures, and then of course, instead of getting clean, I would just uh, do coke in a helmet. I didn't want to crack my head open again. <laughs> that had already happened one time. You know, I was like, oh well, obviously shooting coke is a high impact sport. We need to wear protective gear. I get it. I get it. But. Um, the, the the bottom were just you know you just it's not working anymore you know you've got depression you've got drugs you know you're gonna die I'm having grandma seizures I'm cracking my head open I'm landing in the psych ward it's with people who think they're Thomas Jefferson I was like wow this is not where I expected to be uh, in addition to all that you had to worry about getting busted correct which I never did thank God you know it's Amy when you mention that I I tell people all the time that there's a human phrase that since the cavemen, every adult human being that's ever lived has used this phrase in some language in some form in their life. And that is, seemed like such a good idea when I thought of it. Yeah, right? (laughs) 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 Seems like a good idea at the time. Yeah, exactly. So you don't think you're going to get caught. You just don't. And I had lots of friends who did get caught with possession and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but but didn't stop them. Absolutely didn't stop them. And you know what stopped me? Honestly, I really started to hit, you know, people like, I hit a spiritual bottom. It's like, I hit a physical bottom, really. I was like, shit, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. 
And uh, how did your parents react? To oh my god, my parents were just horrified. I mean, I had seven years sober, and then I relapsed, and then I got clean for a while, and then I relapsed, and I got clean for a while, and I relapsed. You know, which is uh, and and that's a lot of people's story. No, you know, very few people are like, well, I came into the program and uh, you know, got sober, and I've been sober for 19 years. God damn it, you know, <laughs> God willing. It's like that's not my experience, and many people. It's um, but my parents tried everything. How do you stay sober after all this? <sighs> She has no choice. She's married to me. Yeah. <laughs> she's, married, she's married to a drug rehab guy. Yeah, that doesn't look good. Are you her husband or sponsor? Both. <laughs> she's actually, we joked that she's actually in the Andrew Institute. She married me and she's been yeah, well, my two and a half yeah, years. My so. husband was, has worked with the mentally ill for years. So uh, I always tell her that her father actually hired me and she doesn't disturbing? know it's not really a marriage. He's very stabilizing. But um, i, I got to ask, how long have you guys been together? Two, two and, and a half years. years and we've been together about two and two years, nine months. So you met before she became sober. <laughs> we both met We both met when we first got sober. Yeah, and she showed up on my doorstep. And, we don't need and to talk about And she never this. left. And then okay. All right. Two days later, a cat showed up. That was it. Okay. And then we're married. I don't you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm your third wife. You don't like being married. Yeah. <laughs> well, Peter, I got to tell you, this, this guy is not a big, huge, fat man. However, if you well, go to why Amy's, is he a fat man? I don't well, the re, if you go to Amy's show, she talks about her husband as if he weighs five hundred pounds. No disrespect, he was three hundred pounds when I met him. Oh, okay. really? Yes. What do you, it doesn't come from nowhere. That's what happens when you marry a Jew. You, like, shrink. You know? It's like having a small fucking building on you, you know? When I watch those those uh, those shows, they're like, the woman's like, I had a, I was pinned under a car for two days. I'm like, I know the feeling, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, he's lost a lot of weight. So you whipped him into shape. Yeah. <laughs> she just refused to feed me. She doesn't cook. She doesn't clean. I, I can't. Like, you know, she's like, job. you knew I was married, uh, raised by maids. I'll I'm like, oh, great. I'll make you laugh. That's it. That's what I bring to the table. You Support me. <laughs> well, I, I do get both of those, but I get the, the fucking part comes in strange ways as well. Oh no! Okay. What does that mean? Go, no, 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 <laughs> well, no, 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 no. Like, did, you couldn't even imagine. I oh mean, God! I don't a want series careful, of the, careful, uh, careful. Let's just I say have she has presents. ways of changing her genitalia into bandages and things. It's just, uh, I mean, it that defies makes me explanation. sound very loose-lipped. Correct that. <laughs> <laughs> now, now these are the kind of people, unfortunately, that. They wind up going to jail. <laughs> you know, talking about pussy hairdos, is that what you're talking about? Pussy hairdos has not been great. I mean, yeah. you complain right, that... what does that mean? Okay, all right. So, I'm trying to keep sex interesting. I've never been monogamous really before, okay? I've never really been in a relationship. Now I'm married, and I was like, oh, fuck, okay. How do you keep sex interesting, right? So I change up the hairdos down there. You know what I mean? I do it all bald and do that creepy 12-year-old pedophile look. Like, come on, daddy, you know? Have you tried pigtails? Right? Then I grow it all out. I do that sort of crunchy 70s lesbian look, you know? I, mean, I hate that, new, by the way. Well, my, new favorite, my new favorite is where I shave the sides and I leave the middle long and then I wax it into sort of a Salvador Dali, Colonel Sanders mustache. Uh-oh, too much information. Then I have to talk to him like, Ole, señor, ¿por qué tantos alegres delitos? That's how I learned Spanish. There's a reason why we protect people's privacy in this See now, this is what we talk about harm reduction. I need, I need the, I need the harm reduction. I'm harmed. Now, I mean, this really, this really is a serious issue. The fact that someone such as these people could have wound up in prison. Absolutely. And what good would that have done anybody? None. And interestingly enough, and I always like any time the term prisoner jail comes up, I always like to tell everybody listening that first off, we have the largest prison population on the planet. Right. 
we have the most efficient prison pop or prison system on the planet. We have less escapes from our prisons than any other nation in the world. And lots of drugs in prison. And exactly <laughs> what I was going to get to. And we do not have we do not have in the United States of America one drug free prison. And if we can't keep drugs out of prison, who is ludicrous enough to put up a sign that says drug free school? <laughs> Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Peter, I just saw a blurb about these like safe jails that they're going to put for drug addicts. Did you hear about that? No, I haven't heard that one yet. Oh, I saw it on Twitter, uh, and uh, I should I should have brought it up, but it's interesting. Yeah, like special, specific jails or or prison cells for drug addicts. So they're not mixed in with the regular population that are nicer and safer and softer. <laughs> yeah, right. And, they give you a pillow they have, to bite on. <laughs> it, you know, it's, I, always like, I always like to mention two people that live in America. Uh, one is the alcoholic. And by alcoholic, I don't mean in recovery. I mean drinking everyday alcoholic. But this alcoholic does not drink and drive and does not hurt other people or other people's property. And I ask people when I mention this, what do we do to that person? And the answer is nothing. Yeah. Nothing. And what do we do for that person? People usually say to me, nothing, and I go, wait a minute. First off, we provide them treatment on demand if they want it. Absolutely. Anybody can walk into an AA meeting. You don't have to say I'm a criminal first. You're just a, an alcoholic. <laughs> and secondly, we guarantee, and second and third, we guarantee them, first off, a purity of product. So you know when you're buying that product what's in it and who to sue if it's wrong. And two and three, we provide them with a safe place to purchase and use the product in. Licensed taverns, liquor stores, we regulate the marketplace. Then the other American citizen I want that's you to think about is the, is the heroin addict. And I use the heroin addict because that's usually the one that everybody's the most fearful of out there. And But this heroin addict, like my alcoholic, does not use and drive and does not hurt other people or other people's property. What do we do to them? Well, if we catch them, we arrest them, and we hang a felony conviction on their record that stays with them, not like their recovery, which doesn't have to show up in a job interview, but stays with them for every job interview they go for again. And then we throw them into a prison system where we don't really have enough money to pay for treatment because, you know, we had to build all these prisons because we got all these prisoners, and roughly half of those cells are filled by nonviolent drug offenders. And my question is to people, why do we treat these people different? Because we start out by saying what we're trying to do is help them. And if I'm the heroin addict, I'm going to tell you, if you want to help me, why don't you help me like you're helping the alcoholic? Why don't you give me treatment on demand? Why don't you give me a purity of product? Or why don't you give me a safe place to purchase and use in? And then you can judge my behavior. But when you create this uneven environment, then don't call me a, a scumbag on top of it. It's not fair. You don't do that to the alcoholic. Well, the history of drug use and drug enforcement is marked by two things. One, um, religious zealotry, yep. and secondarily, racism. Yep, um, absolutely. Pretty much every drug was made illegal under some racist pretense. In fact, even alcohol, part of it was racial. Because yep. th that was part of the Protestant Reformation of the late 1800s, early 1900s in this country. And there was two groups of people they didn't like. And that was Catholics and Jews.
And who and them? And, 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 <laughs> and, and pouring in through Ellis Island was a lot of Italian and Irish Catholics and a lot of Western European Jews at the beginning of the 20th century. And look who were the gangsters of alcohol prohibition. You got it. People actually don't know that there was a prohibition against uh, alcohol in England for a little while. There was a huge... And tea. Uh, yeah, and tea, but, but particularly alcohol, uh, when there was a gin explosion in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And uh, gin had become very popular, and they actually, there was, everybody was just sitting around drinking all day, so they had to crack down for a while. <laughs> well, that's the background of how they, they, how they got these strange pub laws in terms of opening and closing at various times, like it was going to cure the problem. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you can't use for the next 45 minutes. <laughs> well, you got to keep your, you know, your workforce working, so. Well, that's it. That w- they were making it so they couldn't drink during the working day. Yes. You know, we also we also have to learn from our neighbor Canada when we do get to a legalized regulated marketplace we got to be careful how we do the regulation because about 10 years ago up in Canada they decided to deal with their tobacco problem by raising the price to almost $10 a pack <laughs> and, and all of a sudden and all nice the, pictures on the cigarette packs right <laughs> and all of a sudden surprisingly all of a sudden the black market a gray market popped up mm. and there was smuggling all along the border and I, I heard one, one news interview said that, well, this is unusual. You know, we used to have a problem with peer pressure in schools for kids to get other kids to smoke. Now we have kids marketing cigarettes to kids <laughs> at the school. Okay? This is how Al-Qaeda was raising money. Exactly. So you, what you have to do is you have to, I tell people what you want to do is you, you have to stay away from the edge of the cliff of prohibition. You want to bring your regulation as close to the edge of the cliff as you can get without taking the fatal step over the side. Because, see, an honest person will pay 5 or $6 a pack for cigarettes, but an honest person will continue to pay 7 or $8 a pack if the only way they can buy them is illegally. They'll buy them from an illegal marketer. Absolutely. And you don't want to create that marketplace. And what a sane society does is... Ra- I was up in Vermont um, doing a Rotary Club a few years ago, and uh, in Vermont, I, I'm talking to the Shorter Club, and I thought I'd give them a little comparison. I said, you know, I'll tell you a stupid human behavior, and I don't know why we allow it. I said, you know that there are human beings that when they see a tall, icy mountain, the first thought that comes into their head is, gee, i got to climb up on top of that mountain and then tie two slippery boards to my feet and push myself off the edge. Okay? That's no, actually Amy. That's insane. Wait a minute, that's, that's, in- that's an Olympic sport. That's, in- that's insane behavior. People get killed... People get killed every year doing that. People Only get Gentile crippled. ski. <laughs> People get crippled every year doing that. I said, we ought to ban it. And then I looked at, and this is in Vermont, where they make a nice living off of the ski. <laughs> and I said, we ought to ban it. And then I paused for a second, and I said, or think of what would happen if we banned it. The people that wanted to do it would still do it. But they wouldn't do it on groomed slopes where we had safety people nearby. And you know what? I bet you more people would die, and I bet you more people would be crippled if we banned it than we do if we just regulate it. So you accept the behavior, you regulate it, and you don't allow people to hurt other people or other people's property. That's against the law. I don't care what you're high on, whether it's God or drugs. If you hurt other people or other people's property, you go to jail. 
on the other hand, if you're screwing up your own life, that's for your family and your friends to deal with. It isn't for the criminal justice system. Then again, we do have too many people, so maybe we need more things <laughs> that kill people, especially ones that are dumb enough to slide down a mountain. Yeah, right. Thin the herd. Thin the herd a little bit. I don't know if you're, you may be familiar with what happened in England with the fellow who they got, the professor who was hired to be the drug policy advisor for the English government. I missed that one. And uh, they asked his opinion, and uh, he told them, <laughs> which is basically what you're saying. Right. Uh, he wrote an article in the uh, well, like the Journal of Addiction Studies, and they published this on equestry, equesty. And he had, I mean, it was just laid out like a regular addiction article on how many people were using equesty, the n- a number of brain damage, and all these things. You're talking about ecstasy? No, this is the point. You're talking about horse riding? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and when you get to the end of the article, you realize like, he's talking about so people riding horses. Many more and die it, from that than... And yeah, and more people were brain damaged. Yeah. Yep. Dead and injured from riding horses than from ecstasy or LSD or any of these other things. Exactly. And both they were mad at him. He says, hey, you asked my advice. Right. I'm an expert. I'm telling you. He said, we don't want to hear that. Do you know how hard it is to snort a horse? <laughs> <laughs> Depends what kind of horse you're talking about. Uh, true, right. Well, they, they, call, a they call heroin horse because uh, it's a brand name, you know, from Bayer. It's actually yeah, really. heroin is a brand name for uh, veterinarian-grade morphine. Wow. Well, we we all have. In fact, I just got an email from a friend of mine that showed me a whole list of ads from the late 1800s, early 1900s for cocaine and heroin. Oh, yeah. They were, they were, and, and the one I love is this. Coca-Cola, I, I, I'm not giving you any news here, used to have cocaine in it. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. What's okay? right, it's Coca-Cola. Yeah. But, here, but here's the thing that we all forget. What did they put in the cocaine or in the Coca-Cola when they took the cocaine out? Caffeine. Exactly, because the people still wanted to get a little buzz from the Coca-Cola, yeah. so they just moved to a different drug. <laughs> that sure. isn't a natural byproduct of the cola bean. That's something they added. I was I did a deal for uh, Sin Entertainment, which is Simon LeBond's record label, and this was like one of my other careers. But I went out to Tokyo, where the label's based, and they actually have at the end of every pharmacy this little at the end of this aisle all these little vials of amphetamines, which mm-hmm. are which mimic uh, the meth vials that. They used to hand out during World War II because they dosed the entire population yes. so they wouldn't eat and they would work all day. <laughs> and so, But the older people still want to have like these vials, but they can't sell meth anymore. So you take these things and it's just like chock full of every kind of legal stimulant you can imagine <laughs> in a little vial. So I took one of these, I snapped the top off, I took it, I shook for like two days. <laughs> right? And I'm like drinking beer desperately just to stop like having diarrhea. I'm like, my God, what is in this thing? You yeah, know? but we're doing these power drinks now, which are very close Those to what you're talking seizures. about. You know right. what? People are having seizures they from having those. Seizures. Not right. even just retard epileptics. Like five myself, hours of you know? quote energy and of right. quote. I had no, no, no. I had two rock stars and two diet cokes, and I didn't recognize anyone who was calling me on my phone. <laughs> and I went and I went and I had a grand mal seizure, and I can't drink those anymore. And there was actually uh, lots of articles of people who drink like a, like a sobe or whatever, and they'll bam, they have a, a grand mal seizure. It's all the taurine. It's too much taurine scary and too much stuff. caffeine. Yeah, it's really scary. What what fun? I mean, there's so many ways to entertain yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I have actually known people 
who liked seizures. I mean, I, I, oh. I only have the petite I balls. I beg your pardon? <laughs> but no, I have known people who really enjoy them. It's the guy on top of the woman that's having one, right? Oh, yeah. 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 wow, wow, wow. No, 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 no. no. Uh, For me, you know, seriously, I don't feel mine coming, and I developed them in my mid-30s. I mean, it's really late onset, really late yeah. onset. I mean, one seizure is really one too many. Yeah, it really causes well, some brain, cause brain damage. damage. I mean, I've, I've literally, I mean, I lost my license for a couple of years, and I'll just face plant, you know, and some jackass was like, oh, she's having a seizure. Don't let her bite her tongue. Put a spoon in her mouth, right? And I broke two teeth. It's like, put a spoon in my mouth. How about a wallet? cost me a thousand bucks. Dude, that's like, medi- what medieval medical school did you go to? Are you going to put leeches on me, too? I, you know? I mean, literally, I ended up, you know, breaking teeth and getting stitches and blah, blah. It's scary. Well, they were really supposed scary. to put a, a wood stick in your mouth, not You're not metal. supposed to put anything. Yeah, You're supposed to put I had, I had, when I first got on the PD, I had a doctor tell me, if you have somebody with a seizure, what you do is kneel down at their head, yeah. take yeah. the back of their head in your hands, get straighten their neck out as much as you can, mm-hmm. and just sit there and wait there until the go. seizure there passes. There you go. Wow. That, the you biggest know? thing is head injury. That's how I'm mean, really, you know, yeah. I opened exactly. my head up once. I woke up and I was at Cedar sinai having my head sewn closed. I thought, oh, good. That's going to fuck up my haircut. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep. Vanity new, first. Right? Everyone's like, oh, I love your new shaggy do. Yeah? You like the brain surgery haircut? It's good, isn't it? So no, nobody thought we were, they were going to be getting some medical advice when they called into the show. <laughs> <laughs> the people that I know that have gone clean um, off really hard drugs it's just you burn out you can't yep. you can't have a lifestyle it wasn't necessarily you know prison that got them clean I know a couple people who they'll stay clean in prison but as soon as they get out they get loaded but it's just you can't really you know conduct either you, you fall apart physically and you get infections and that kind of stuff or you just can't deal you know, with going the, yeah well, I think one and, of the, then, and then it all depends on the drug too because when the Swiss when the Swiss started their heroin maintenance program over in Switzerland one of the things they saw was a 40% increase in the employment rate amongst the addicts that were being served by this program that's amazing because heroin is a different drug yes. you, you shoot up you nod oh, for about an hour an hour and a half and then you're normal yeah. for, you know, six or seven hours. You can go have a job. You can go do anything you want to do. And then you shoot up again and you nod for an hour and an hour like and a half. King. And actually, yeah. most of the well, negative health side effects from uh, legal street drugs are because of the things they're cut with. Exactly. Oh, there, and, and there is a big problem. I, while I was living in Las Vegas, I used to say that the, the crack uh, addicts in Vegas weren't really crack addicts. They were gambling addicts. They were gambling that the next time they bought it, it would be real. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was right. going to say they were baby laxative addicts. Oh yeah, baby likes some addicts. <laughs> Vitamin B addicts. With I can't the, poo without my without my crack. No. Is that? They never well, Amy, Amy mentioned something before about you. you, you uh, it's that old thing: you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. Absolutely. You know? yeah. And 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 what always amazes me is when people when there's an overdose and somebody will say, "Well, why would they overdose?" And people don't intentionally yeah. overdose. Yeah. It's because they don't know the dosage. One day you buy it off the street, it's ten percent. The next yeah, day it's absolutely. fifteen. Strength, strength is always different. And the other thing is. I read an interesting article about this. There is a theory uh, advanced by one doctor that people do not die of heroin overdoses. What they die from is that they drink with it. Yeah, right. We're doing a big disservice. Really? Yes. That's true of yeah, all 58, drugs. Like that. 58% of all overdoses, I hear I'm the stack guy, 58% of all <laughs> overdoses are actually from a mixture of two drugs or more. And if, that, if people were educated
that, okay, if you're going to shoot heroin, don't drink. No. I, really? Well, that's, no, no I, I lost a lot of friends just because of that. It was either, it was not, wasn't heroin, it was cocaine and then the liquor. And then up and down and yeah. up and down and into the psych ward. Never mix them. Well, you know, to, 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 to get back to the main leap point on this stuff, they did a study in New York City, and I think this sums up our issue at LEAP pretty well, on drug-related violence. They looked at hospital admissions, they looked at you know arrests, everything they could find for a whole year, drug-related violence. And at the end of the report, they said 75% of the drug-related violence in New York City during that year was marketplace disputes. Yep. Okay, it. now 25% was people being high on drugs and hurting somebody else or whatever, and that we have to deal with. But 75% of the violence was due to the policy that's in effect. And that we can change, and we have to start talking that, about that, that issue. That correlates with the uh, with our marriage, my marriage to Amy, because seventy five percent of our disputes have to do with her buying fur clothes or not. Twenty five percent have to do with dirtiness and cleanliness. Exactly. So. Well, we're learning everything today. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Are you going to take? This? By the way, Don Waldman is the world's greatest and most famous divorce attorney. I decided to let you know, but I don't know. Thanks. If you can, either one of you afford it. Just in case. <laughs> Jesse, he got out. Of, he got out of the criminal law and thought he'd go to something more entertaining. Right. Now I deal with real criminals. Should I worry if my wife only records on the DVR like Snapped and Dateline How to Kill Your I'm just fascinated by it. I'm, fa- I was I'm not on Snap I'm just not learning. Week. I already, you know. Oh, you are really. Yeah, I was on Snapped. Uh, oh, we did cool. that. Were you really? Uh, yeah. Oh my God, I love wow. that show. Well, you'll see me. I'm wearing the same dark shirt and same red tie every time they show the episodes. The one about Rhonda Glover, my new book, Fatal. So Beauty. if I die, anybody out there listening, oh, you stop. know who to look for. Stop. <laughs> stop. <laughs> Antifreeze in the orange juice. I already got it, dude. <laughs> we're, we're getting near the end of the hour. Let me do a quick plug. Please do. Okay, uh, for anybody listening, if you want to learn more about LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, you can go to leap.cc or com. Or the easiest way is if you type the word LEAP, L-E-A-P, into Google, we're the first thing that pops up, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And take a look at the website, and uh, anybody that wants to join can join us. The only people that speak for LEAP come from law enforcement. Yeah, say hello to Norm Stamper for us. Oh, yeah. In fact, isn't that an interesting situation? Seattle produced two, two chiefs, their last two chiefs of police, one of them is Norm Stamper, who's a speaker for LEAP and mm-hmm. talks about legalizing drugs, and the other one is Kilikowski, who's the drug czar. Yeah, no, uh, wow. Norm said he wanted to go have a chat with him. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. Quotes are on chat. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I've got to give you a little bit of a compliment. You know, we, we post uh, all these shows on uh, Police Pulse. Okay. A- and, uh, uh, of course, I promoted the previous time you were on, and a uh, guy sent me a message. Of course, these are all law enforcement personnel. He says, thank you so much. He says, uh, reactivated me as a uh, former police officer. I used to go out and do things for leap years ago, and then I fell out of it. He says, and I listened to Peter. He says, nice. and I'm, I'm back into it again. Nice. Well, good. Good, 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 good. We need as much as we can get. This is it. You know, one of the, uh, we're getting near the end of this, but one of the things that I do with my presentation is I mention other things that we have done as a society, and I look into the audience, and I like to say, and Amy, you can steal this if you want to. Okay. Um, I, like, I look into the audience, I say, I want to thank all the women that are here today for representing a group of people who studied real hard, and finally, by 1920, became intelligent enough to vote. 
and then I wait for the reaction, and then I say, now, obviously, as my lovely wife says, I'm being feces about this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but, but... For 150 years, women didn't have the right to vote in this country, and that didn't become a bad idea in 1920. That was always a bad idea, but it took us 150 years to educate the public to the stupidity of it. And this is the same with this prohibition stuff. This is an educational process, and we have to get people to see this isn't about the drugs. This is about the policy. Once we deal with the policy, then we have to deal with the drug problem in our society. Well, you know, Peter, I was a keynote speaker of a conference in uh, Moses Lake, and the first thing I said to anyone in the audience, who would like to be more forgiving? Of course, yes. all these people raise their hand. And I said, sir, I'm happy you raised your hand because I just keyed your car and I'm sleeping with your wife. <laughs> <laughs> the point being, they all look at me shocked. I right? can't believe you're alive. <laughs> I said, you know, if you see, in order to be more forgiving, you have to have something to forgive. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and it hadn't occurred to them. If you want to be more patient, go stand in the longest line in the supermarket. You know? <laughs> Let's have some, some basic thought here. Now, the only thing that, that concerns me is I just read a, a study that shows that facts don't impress people much anymore, that people will have an opinion, and let's say I believe something that isn't true, and someone brings me the factual information, I'll go, BS! Right. And well, look, at the think, look at the birth of Oh, I know, it's insane. Not to, I know. Not to, yeah, I know. Hold on, not to interrupt or nothing. However, um, it's still simply an opinion that a woman having the right to vote is a good idea. <laughs> That's our producer. That's our producer. You can always count Amy, on him. Amy, before we run out of time, where can we see you doing your stand-up? Well, I'm going to be at the Comedy Store this week. I'm going to be at the Ice House. I'm doing a fundraiser for uh, domestic violence and uh, breast cancer. Uh, you can go to www.amydresner.com, D-R-E-S-N-E-R.com. And then uh, I'm going on tour. I'm going on tour with Thelen O'Reilly and Ian Hart. We were doing Laughs Without Liquor. Yeah, we're here's a stand-up comic was arrested 76 times. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, not for his act either. Yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> and, Helen's uh, been on the show. We're going to San Francisco and Portland and uh, Atlanta and Key West, and it's a great show. And also we donate half our proceeds to a local uh, treatment program. Well, that's awfully sweet of you. I know. It's and way too Based on the last show I saw, the, really uh, the, the rehab probably got about $4.20. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Peter, it's always great having you on the show. Really? Well, it's a joy to do it. I enjoy it. Now I can go back and figure out what happened during the NASCAR race today. But I, <laughs> oh, it's, okay. it's waiting for me on the DVR. Oh, Somebody God. won. God bless the DVR. <laughs> it's, it's a pleasure, gentlemen. I'll say goodbye. Thank okay, you very bye much, bye, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Well, another one. Yeah, that was great. Amy Dressner, Thank world famous uh, Thank comic. Thank you for being here. Vastly entertaining. And her beloved formerly 300-pound husband. <laughs> Boy, she has worn you down. Is just a shell of your former self. Yeah, she's ravaged you tremendously. I know, it's terrible. <laughs> Somebody Magic. send me a sandwich. <laughs> I've seen pictures of people in sandwiches before. Stop that. Oh, yeah. All right. Okay, enough of that. We're going to strap on some entertainment with Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence coming up in mere moments on the standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed broadcast industry. Ladies and gentlemen, live from the gleaming, streamlined studios of Outlaw Radio's world headquarters in the hills of Encino, 
The following program, True Crime Uncensored, is produced with a vengeance by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network and heard live worldwide on all sorts of places, including Error FM, your iPhone, your iPod, your droid, the fillings in your teeth. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man in the lawyer chair, Don Waldman. I don't know what to do to your broadcast. <laughs> you hear microphones breaking up there. Pal. Sorry, don't. Yeah, hit that thing. Yeah, I told you it was gleaming state-of-the-art equipment here. But it works. Yeah. <laughs> here comes Matt. He knows everything. Damn it. God damn it. Hey. No way to start. No way to start an award-winning radio show. Don't don't mess with that. Amy will have to slap you around. All right. <laughs> of course, that may be part of the program. I think it's okay now. Hey, we're wonderful. Up. We have quite a lineup today. Yeah, we're going to learn why I'm not married to a Jewish woman. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Nice Jewish boys learn early that uh, there's nothing like having a chicks in the closet. <laughs> I think that's the moral of the story, isn't it? Uh, I don't know if Peter Christ is Jewish or if he married a Jewish girl, but uh, he was a narc. And uh, he's with us today. We have Amy Dresner, who is still Jewish and uh, former meth addict. True, and a true. stand-up comic. And we said you used to be a whore, but I don't know if that's true that's or not. That's not true at all. Okay, she didn't used to be a whore. I'm still a whore. <laughs> Glad we got Never that clear. Stopped. No. No, 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 I never was a whore. No. Well, my husband disagrees, but it's all relative. You know what I mean? Well, you're related to him, so it is relative. In fact, we have your husband here also. Hello. Yeah. Hi, husband. He's got his fingers in his ears. Yeah, he's no fool. Right. Uh, <laughs> Peter. Amy, but you know. Peter, you there, pal? Yeah, I'm here. Hey. hey. Mr. Leap, how are you? <laughs> Well, ready to leap forward, yeah. as always. Yeah, it's always. been a couple of years since we had you on the show, but uh, you get a lot of coverage there in the archives. Uh, back in the days when you were a narc, you probably would have arrested Amy Dresner, not for her comic performances. <laughs> but <laughs> Well, that remains to be seen, I guess. <laughs> but uh, Amy was... Uh, well, you know, she's very familiar with drugs, aren't you, Amy? Yeah, I am. Yeah, there is a certain snobbery among drug users, isn't there? Snobbery? Abs yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, I've been in quite a few rehabs, and I think it's interesting that people are snobby about what drugs they did. Like, even in rehab, I well, found that. You know, people are like, oh, I did coke, but, you know, I never touched meth. Meth's ghetto. It's like, uh, you're still in fucking rehab, one, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, like... Meth is just more efficient than Coke, people. You know what I mean? Coke gets you high for eight minutes. Meth gets you high for eight days. Come on, you know? Let's Whoa. save some fucking and, money. It's a recession. And also, when you're buying it at an illegal marketplace, you don't know what you're putting up your nose. Oh, when you're oh, meth or Coke well, Peter, or you have no idea how true that is. I got actually a really, really severe infection in my face, and my whole face blew up. It was bad. It was really bad. And that's yeah, an you, don't, you don't have that problem with legal marketplaces, see? Because if a legal marketplace right. does that, to you, you know who to sue. Yeah, you can call a Better Business Bureau instead yeah. of Raul. But a legal marketplace is <laughs> <assumes> a spider. <laughs> A legal marketplace assumes that you're going to educate middle America into the fact that such horrible drugs like marijuana, which are classified <laughs> as major drugs in the federal system, aren't. Well, that that is something that we have to deal with. The thing is that we have two situations in this country that we call one. And that's the drug problem. We hear about an overdose someplace, and we say that's the drug problem. Then we hear about a drive-by shooting someplace that's reported to us as a drug-related shooting, and we say that's part of the drug problem. In reality, we have two separate problems. The drug problem, the use and abuse of these drugs, is going to be with us as long as two things exist on this planet. 
drugs and human beings. There's, there's always going to be a drug problem, and we're going to have to deal with that forever. On the other hand, that drive-by shooting, that violence on the Mexican border, that's not the drug problem. That's the drug policy problem. And we can change that, just like we did with alcohol policy back in 1933. Peter, you have a great statement that prohibition created Al Capone. We had Al Capone's niece on the air last week. And uh, she said, you know, everything good dear old Uncle Al was providing was just what the people wanted. Right, it was warm and fuzzy Al Capone last week. Yeah, well, really, really, there's a picture in that book of Al Capone dressed as Santa with her sitting on his lap. <laughs> I believe in the tooth fairy, too. But, well, uh, it's, it's interesting when you talk about that, because we, we used to call it victimless crime. I, could, I prefer the term consensual crime. Mm. And that is an act that happened between consenting adults that they want to do with each other. I want to sell you drugs, you want to buy my drugs. How is drugs. that any different for prostitution, really? It is absolutely no right. different than prostitution. Exactly the same situation. Gambling, exactly the same situation. You're the, the victim. thing is, when you don't like these things, when society doesn't like these things, and they choose to use the criminal justice system to deal with them, what you in fact do is create more crime and violence in your society. Because it, the activity is not going to stop it, it's just going to go underground. Well, but Peter, don't we have a I drug agree. war going on, a war against drugs? Isn't no, it's a war the... against the minorities, I thought. <laughs> well, it's a war against people, that it's our own people at the war. No, I'm talking against. about the United States program, War on Drugs. You don't buy into it? I sure well, don't. Well, no, I don't buy into it. I thought it was stupid when it started, and I was on the job when it mm, started. Mm. So it, it, this is not the way to deal with this problem. What you have to do is you deal with the drug problem through the best methods you know how, and that's education and providing health care for people. And you deal with the uh, violence problem by ending the underground marketplace, by turning off the tap, and then you get, to, you get to regulate and control the drug marketplace. And whether you choose the government to do the regulation like we do with the other drugs, or whether you choose the general industry like we do with herbal drugs. We don't really have a government control over that. We let them self-regulate themselves. Any one of those systems is better than a prohibitionary marketplace. Well, what people forget is the drug war in Mexico is over distribution to the United States. Exactly, exactly. We're the big consumer here. You know, it's interesting. I heard somebody say to me, well, if we legalize marijuana, that they say that'll put 60% cut in the drug cartel's money. According to the UN, the international underground drug marketplace is a $500 billion a year in Oh, the corruption techniques must be right. wonderful in that. Right. Oh, yeah, with that much money running around? Tell me, the last, tell me the last time you read about a police corruption case that didn't involve either drugs, gambling, or prostitution. There's too much money involved. That's why, and it's cash. Exactly. Well, I always exactly. heard that if you read about a big bust, it was the cops getting rid of the competition. Well, that, that's, that's part of it. In fact, we know from recent investigations on stuff that went on up in Boston and stuff, is they used to, they used to snitch on their competitors so that they would get busted so they could secure their own marketplace. Well, we, but we cre the thing is, we create this. We choose this policy as a nation, and we can unchoose it. One of my favorite stories was I was up on a case up in Fresno, and while I was up there, they had a multi-million dollar cocaine bust, all of which was stolen out of the evidence locker of the police. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, that, that big French connection bust, that, no, that yeah. all went back it, into the market. Where, where is that now? Well, we can't find it. I lived in right. New Orleans for 10 years, and it was just the police shooting each other on the corners. They'd 
reported openly in the newspaper. And, uh, you know, the sheriff there, they used to make like $7,000, I'm sorry, $11,500 a year. And then they're surprised that they're protecting gang tor- territory for selling drugs. It's just, you know, amazing. Now, now you, excuse me, Molly, will you introduce yourself? So oh, yeah, you I'm know. sorry. I'm Andrew. I'm Amy's uh, servient husband. Subservient. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're like, you have subs and doms. Yeah. No, but Andrew, you've, you, you, you know, you own rehabs and you've been CEOs of rehabs. Tell, you know, what do you think about, uh, you know, treatment of addicts? I'm, I think I'm like one of the rare sort of treatment professionals is actually more of a libertarian. So I tend to agree with everyone here that, you know, we should have an open, you know, uh, policy, some regulation, you know, obviously there's some control and quality control that's good. Yeah, quality control is always the big issue for me. Yeah, I mean, you know, (laughs) well, you don't want people overdosing if you can help it. And then, you know, I actually am moving towards where they are in Europe, where there's a harm reduction model where it's about, uh, you know, trying to reduce the what they call externalities of drug use. So if somebody gets HIV or drunk driving, for example, you know, so you have zero tolerance for, you know, uh, behavior that affects other people, but if it affects them directly, then you just try and intervene and try to lower the secondary consequences. Well, that's, that's the thing. Is we First off, just so we're clear, and this is not a leap position, but I'm just telling you my own position on this, Addiction is not a disease, it's a choice. And in fact, and I think we have to start dealing with that and empowering the addict. Well, but I think it starts out as a choice and becomes an there addiction. There we go. I think yeah, that's, that, that's actually what the, the studies show that, uh, you know, you start using, but once you've been exposed to Your brain a process or changes. toxin, I, I, there's an I addictive process. I understand all that, right. and, I, and I agree with all that, and I think the studies are wonderful. Tell me one other disease that you can choose not to have. Lung cancer. No, that you <laughs> no, choose you, not no, to have that. No, my uncle died of lung cancer. He never smoked and was never even around anything uh, cancer. Who was, the, who was the comedian died at 30 years old with lung cancer? Um, you can uh, take any case example, but the, this well, pointing the back point, to harm my, reduction is my that... Point is, my, point, my point is simple. Right. If you're a recovering addict, you are choosing every day not to use. That's the definition of recovery. True. Okay? And the point is we have to put more emphasis on that choice. Now, do people, when they get into addictive behavior, do they become less able to deal with those choices in their life? Yes. And that's why they need support systems behind them to get them through that step. But the reality is that I think we create a huge misnomer because what we do is when we call it a disease, we blame the drug for the addiction. And in reality, it is the. Per- I had a heroin addict come up to me and he said at a Rotary Club about five years ago, and he said, "I'm a recovered heroin addict." I said, "Oh, how's your recovering? Go- how's your recovery going?" He said, "I'm recovered." Yeah, I said, well. well, I thought there was no such thing as recovered, and he said, let me tell you what it is. Recovery is thinking that heroin was your problem. Recovered is when you understand that heroin wasn't your problem, you were the problem, and you took yourself to heroin, and it seemed to help in the beginning, but then it made the problem worse. And he said that's what recovered meant to him. Well, whatever because, works. Well, there's a yeah. lot of retards out there, too. So. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. That sounds very 12-step. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's an awful lot of people who go into rehab multiple, multiple times. It becomes a lifestyle Peter, choice. you yeah. could say it's a choice, but then why are there genetic markers for it? Why does it run in families? Well, that's your well, true there, alcohol, there may I know. Be, there may be predispositions. Uh, absolutely just like, there are. Just you know? like there, just like there, I don't, and I don't doubt that, just like there is 
to cancer and heart disease and things like that. Then we also have the issue of chemical dependence. I always thought if you really want to see a spike in crime related to drugs, make insulin illegal. Right, and exactly. exactly <laughs> I assure exactly. you, every diabetic is going to be out there knocking over to 7-Eleven because, you know... Uh, now, just using myself as a peculiar example, and I am a peculiar example, I had a TBI when I was a kid. That stands for traumatic brain injury. And uh, that explains a lot, Yeah, it Pearl. sure does. And uh, my brain kind of rewired itself in an interestingly. interesting pattern. <laughs> However, uh, there were just some parts that didn't quite work right. Uh, fortunately, they have come up with medications. Uh, the medication, Not enough for you, bro. Not enough for me. However... It's uh, heroin in this case. No, it's not. It's exactly the opposite. I have to take by prescription massive amounts of stimulants in the older I get, the more stimulants I have to oh, take. Oh, you're so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Except I, need, I need a TBI. Where, yeah, right? Unfortunately, Grab that hammer. <laughs> yeah, we'll whack in there with a crowbar before the show's over. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't get me high. It just keeps me normalized yeah, yeah, instead yeah, of being asleep the all the time. Yeah, now, if someone else thing. were to take what I take by prescription, we'd have to tie a you know a string around their foot. <laughs> you know, they'd be in the Macy's parade. Uh, we'll my, talk later. My theory being is that if it's something you need as a medication, whether it's insulin or colcetrine, if you have the gout or the medications I take. The gout? Is this 1900s? <laughs> people still do have the gout. They have to take a medication for it. There's Col- two in this room. <laughs> called colcetrine. Col- 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 Peter, I, I gotta ask you, 20 years as a police captain, what turns you into law enforcement against prohibition? Well, to be honest with you, just so you know what kind of a hypocrite you're talking to. <laughs> That's what I want to hear. Um, I I got into I only got into police work for one reason, and that is when I joined the Navy. When I joined the Navy for the twenty year retirement, I realized after a couple days that that wasn't a good choice for me. And then I got out of the Navy, and uh, I'm a Vietnam era veteran, by the way, not a Vietnam War veteran. And when I got out of the Navy, I was still wanted a twenty year retirement, so I started looking around, and it was either police work or fire work, and. To be honest, I was brought up in a wonderful, loving family, so I didn't need to be loved, so there was no reason to be a firefighter. So I became a police officer. I figured I could I could stand being hated. My problem was that when I was about 20, 21 years old, I had become very, thanks to the untouchables, and my parents, who were young teenagers and young adults during alcohol prohibition, um, I became very interested in that period of time, and I read a lot about it. And when I got to be about 20, 21 years old, I realized why prohibition didn't work, and that was because it was a stupid idea from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, but you're in a position where you're enforcing it. Yeah, and, well, and then I took a job where my job was to enforce these laws. So what I did was, when I took the job, I had a little talk with myself, and I said, look at everything you know about this is theory. Um, you're going to be in this business now. Put all your thinking on the back burner and give this a fair shot. So I went into the job, and I looked at it, and by the time I was on the job four years, I realized I was right when I walked in the door. That this was, this was the only aspect of my job, arresting people for drugs, that no matter how many we arrested, it didn't make any difference. Absolutely. When we arrested a burglar, we saw a decrease in the number of burglaries we would have in our community. Mm-hmm. We would have a series of bank robbers. Somebody would arrest the bank robber, and the bank robberies would stop for a while. We made drug arrests, and it was like we were never there. So from that point on, for the next 16 years on the job, I started speaking internally. I still did my job, because my father used to say that you decide you're going to do something before you take the man's money. 
Once you've taken the money, you're not deciding if you're going to do it anymore. Now you have to do it. You have to do it well because you're putting your name on it. So I did my job because that's what I was paid to do. But I knew that it was pointless. And as soon as I retired in 1989, I, in fact, I had to talk about a month before my retirement with a good attorney friend of mine, a former prosecutor up in Erie County, New York. And uh, he said to me, what are you going to do when you retire? I said, I'm going to get involved in drug policy reform. We're doing so much damage to this society with this policy. We have to end it. And he said to me, well, if you want to be effective doing that, you're going to have to get yourself arrested. And I said, <laughs> and, and I said to him, I'm going to prove you wrong on that. <laughs> well, also, you have another issue that nobody seems to talk about, and that's the safety of law enforcement themselves involving these drug arrests. In fact, I, I do the work I do now. What, how I view it is to help my brothers and sisters in law enforcement to get out of this. In fact, I've had law enforcement people come up to me after presentations and say, on the side, not publicly, keep up the good work, you're absolutely right, get us out of this. Because they realize the damage, not only the damage that it does, just the threat of the violence, but the damage it does to the police officer's working relationship with the citizens. When you're in investigating what people are doing privately in their in their own back room, they don't want to talk to you, even if you're looking for the burglar oh, in the boy, I'll tell you, you know, Peter, we had a situation in Washington State, and I wrote a book about it, which is still available, called Body Count, about the Spokane serial killer. Oh, and, that sounds like a plug, bro. It was. Uh, I'm no fool. And he was, bump, he was bumping off uh, these chicks that all ran in the same little crack crew, right? Mm -hmm. And what the cops very cleverly figured out to do is they went to the working girls on the street and the dealers on the street, and he said, don't panic. We're not here to arrest you. We're not right. even going to search you. Listen, there is some Someone killing crack hoes, basically, right? Selling, selling it, doing it, whatever it is that is irrelevant compared to murder. Right. We don't, you know, here's our card, this is who's missing, and we're not going to even say, I won't arrest you today when they mean they'll arrest you tomorrow. We're not, you know, we're gonna, we're, we don't care about that. We're just focused on one thing, and that's catching the killer. And because they were able, to a great effort, form relationships with the working women on the street and the drug dealers on the street, they finally caught the guy. Exactly. He was killing people also in Pierce County. They weren't smart enough to take that tact. Well, the, you know, that is the problem. I got into law enforcement, and I was taught in basic training and everything else that what our job in law enforcement was was to protect people from each other. It was never explained to me that it was my job to protect people from their own best interests. Mm. Okay. <laughs> now we're back to victimless crimes again. You know, one of the exactly. things, though, you got to look at it, and, and I, I'm for legalization of drugs. Uh, I think they still need to be regulated, but um, it won't come without consequences. When you expose the population to a large amount of substances that do cause problems, and meth, for example, is much more serious of a drug than even cocaine, and I see a lot of drug-induced psychosis coming into my treatment centers. But so, would you say that most of that psychosis is not so much from the drug? doing this on studies in Japan, is that it's not the meth that makes them crazy, it's that they don't sleep. Well, it's the well, it's use of the of drug, both. and then it triggers the psychosis. And so whether it's the drug or the person or whatever, if you expose the population to more meth, you're going to have more psychosis. So you have to have a policy, public, a public policy, that's also going to address those issues. You have to provide care, because otherwise you're going to have a bunch of psychotic people running around causing well, problems as well. So let's, I'll give you a perfect example. We did, two, uh, we did two things in 1933. One was brilliant. We ended alcohol prohibition. And the other one was profoundly <laughs> stupid, and that was we embarked on almost a 50-year journey of pretending we didn't have an alcohol problem. I'll exactly. give you a perfect example of that. 
I came on the police department in 1969, February of 1969. I made my first DWI arrest in 1971. Wow. Two years after I came, and when I brought that person back into the station, I took heat from my fellow officers. They said things to me like, well, you drink too. What are you bothering that poor slob for? That, that was the attitude. In Where the was he when I needed him? <laughs> and, then, and then in the late 70s, a little group started up in America called MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And the first ones they went after was my profession. And they said, do your job. Well, that's when and the arrest since, started going up. And, exactly. And since then, we've drastically reduced the number of people that die due to... DWI accidents on the street. We've saved lives. We've dealt very differently with alcohol. We don't drink like they do on Mad Men anymore. <laughs> you know, that was the 50s and the 60s. I don't want to see us legalize drugs tomorrow and then go on a 40-year bender pretending we don't have a drug problem. And, and there's, another, there's another major issue involving our very judicial system, and that's got to do with you going to any arraignment court. Huh. It sounds like 70 to 80 percent of the people that are making pleas are in drug-related crimes. Right. And this is consuming an enormous amount of judicial exactly. time and expense and going in circles because they have all kinds of rehab programs and ways of getting around it, but it's consuming time and expense. And the therapeutic state where... And they can't afford it. Where I've out of money. in California or some others where uh, you're sentenced, sentenced to rehab, and if you relapse, then you get to go to jail. So yeah. I mean, it's just... Uh, and, no, and, relapse, the, the and, diversion. Relapse, and relapse is a part of the process of recovery. It's yeah, part I mean, of the process. It's expected for there to be relapses. Well, we're going to re we're going to re we're going to relapse for 60 seconds, Peter, and uh, uh, we'll be back after tying off right after this message. So uh, hang on. All right. Some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. Hi, I'm Johnny Cosmo, author of The Catcher in the Rye and The Player's Guide to Playing. Hey, listen to this. If you own an iPhone and a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you're no longer tied to your computer, and I know a thing or two about getting untied. You're now free to roam and take 
Find the Outlaw Radio Gang everywhere you go. So grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application. The smoke and drink and interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends on Outlaw Radio. That's right, the demons of decadence. Change the way you listen to radio seven days a week. Now available free at the iTunes App Store. Yes, of course. Burl Baron. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. I am the legendary Burl Bear, man, the lawyer chair, Don Waldman. We have with us live in the Lighten Up Lounge, Amy Dressner, former uh, meth addict, who now is a stand-up comic. And I've actually seen her perform, and she's actually quite amusing. I find that a very unusual transition, by the way. Yeah, how did you do that, Amy? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Honestly, I got clean, and uh, I really had no life skills. I'd been fired from every job I'd ever had, and I thought, what am I going to do? How long were How long have you been an addict? Uh, On and off for probably 15 years. Wow. I'd had like seven years sobriety and then I'd relapse. I'd been in rehab quite a few different times. I tried, you know, I thought meth didn't work for me, so I tried shooting coke like a lady. That didn't really work out. (laughs) You know, I tried different things. But, uh, you know, I really was like, what am I going to do with my life? And I thought, well, what are my skills? What's my history? Let's look at this. And I was like, well, dysfunctional relationships, you know, drug addiction, depression, comic, of course. Oh, my God. (laughs) It writes itself. You must have hit bottom in order to come up. What was your bottom? Oh, God. I had a couple. I mean, the one with meth, I was a meth addict in my uh, in my mid-20s, and um, I never was arrested. I did deal meth very briefly just to support my own habit, and um, what got me sober was the fact that I was starting to really lose my mind and starting to... You know, I woke up, I went and walked into a market and I woke up in a rehab. I mean, I woke up in an ambulance and the, the lady said to me, she said, uh, did you, you know, we think you had a seizure. Did you do any drugs tonight? No. And I said, obviously some really shitty ones. <laughs> you know, here I am, you know. Uh, so did you wake up in a psych ward? You know, uh, I've done that too. Uh, that was just, that was only like a year and a half ago. Um, yeah, I had a, I have epilepsy now from all the meth abuse. From all the drugs wow. I've done, I have a full grand mal like epilepsy, and wow. um, those could be real entertaining during sex, right? Uh, yeah, that doesn't actually happen with it, where. yeah. Um, but you know, when I was uh, doing coke, I'd have a lot of seizures, and then of course, instead of getting clean, I would just uh, do coke in a helmet. I didn't want to crack my head open again because that had already happened one time. You know, I was like, oh well, obviously shooting coke is a high impact sport. We need to wear protective gear. I get it. I get it. But um. The, the, the bottom, we're just, you know, you just, it's not working anymore. You know, you've got depression, you've got drugs, you know you're going to die. I'm having grandma seizures, I'm cracking my head open, I'm landing in the psych ward it's with kind people of a who message, think they're Thomas Jefferson. I was like, wow, this is not where I expected to be. Uh, in addition to all that, you had to worry about getting busted. Correct, which I never did. Thank God. You know, it's Amy, when you mention that, I, I tell people all the time that there's a human phrase that since the cavemen, every adult human being that's ever lived has used this phrase in some language, in some form in their life. And that is, seemed like such a good idea when I thought of it. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, you don't think you're going to get caught. You just don't. And I had lots of friends who did get caught with possession and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but, but it didn't did, stop them. Absolutely didn't stop them. Right. And you know what stopped me? Honestly, I really started to hit, you know, people like, I hit a spiritual bottom. It's like, I hit a physical bottom, really. I was like, shit, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. 
And uh, how did your parents react? To oh going my god, out my parents you? were just horrified. I mean, I had seven years sober, and then I relapsed, and then I got clean for a while, and then I relapsed, and I got clean for a while, and I relapsed. You know, which is uh, and and that's a lot of people's story. You know, very few people are like, well, I came into the program and uh, you know, got sober, and I've been sober for 19 years. God damn it, you know, <laughs> God willing. It's like that's not my experience, and many people. It's, um, but my parents tried everything. How do you stay sober after all this? She has no choice. She's married to me. Yeah. <laughs> She's married to a drug look, rehab I mean, guy. Yeah, that doesn't look good. Are you her husband or sponsor? Both. <laughs> <laughs> She's actually, we joked that she's actually in the Andrew Institute. She married me and she's been yeah, well, my two and a half yeah, years. Yeah, my so. husband was, has worked with the mentally ill for years. So I always uh, tell her that her father actually hired me and she doesn't disturbing. know it's not really a marriage. He's very stabilizing. But um, i, I got to ask, how long have you guys been together? Two, two and, and a half years. years and we've been together about two and... Two years, nine months. So you met before she became sober. <laughs> we both met. We both met when we first got sober. Yeah, and she showed up on my doorstep, and we don't. And then she never this. left. And okay. then, okay. All right. two days later, a cat showed up. That was it. Okay. Then we're married. I don't, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm your third wife. You don't like being married. Yeah. <laughs> well, Peter, I got to tell you, this this guy is not a big, huge, fat man. However, if you go to Amy's... Why is he a fat man? I don't know. Well, if you go to Amy's show, she talks about her husband as if he weighs 500 pounds. Girl, no disrespect. He was 300 pounds when I met him. Oh, really? Yes. It doesn't come from nowhere. That's what happens when you marry a Jew. You, like, shrink. You know? It's like having a small fucking building on you. You know? When I watch those those uh, those shows, they're like the woman's like, I had a, I was pinned under a car for two days. I'm like, I know the feeling, you know? So, yeah, he's lost a lot of weight. So you whipped him into shape. Yeah. She just refused to feed me. She doesn't cook. She doesn't clean. I, I can't. So, you know, she's like, you knew I was married, uh, raised by maids. I'll I'm like, oh, no, great. I'll make you laugh. That's it. That's what I bring to the table. You Support me. <laughs> well, I, I do get both of those, but I get the, the fucking part comes in strange ways as well. Oh, no. Okay. What does that mean? Go, no, 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 well, no, you know, no, no. Like, did, you couldn't even imagine. I oh, mean, God. I don't a series of the, Careful. Uh, careful. Let's just I say she has presents. ways of changing her genitalia into bandages and things. It's just, uh, I mean, it that defies makes me explanation. That sound very loose lipped. Correct that. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, these are the kind of people, unfortunately, that. To wind up going to jail. <laughs> are we talking about pussy hairdos? Is that what we're talking about? Pussy hairdos has not been great. I mean, yeah. you complain right. that... What does that mean? Okay, all right. So, I'm trying to keep sex interesting. I've never been monogamous really before, okay? I've never really been in a relationship. Now I'm married, and I was like, oh, fuck, okay. How do you keep sex interesting, right? So I change up the hairdos down there. You know what I mean? I do it all bald and do that creepy 12-year-old pedophile look. Like, come on, daddy, you know? Have you tried pigtails? Right? Then I grow it all out. I do that sort of crunchy 70s lesbian look, you know? I, mean, I hate that, new, by the way. My new favorite, my new favorite is where I shave the sides and I leave the middle long, and then I wax it into sort of a Salvador Dali Colonel Sanders mustache. Oh, too much information. Then I have to talk to him like, "Ole, señor, por qué andando alegres delidos?" Yes, that's reason. how I learned Spanish. There's a reason why we protect people's privacy in this country. <laughs> <laughs> See, now this is when we talk about harm reduction. <laughs> I, need, I, need the, I need the harm reduction because I'm harmed. Now, I mean, this really, this really is a serious issue, the fact that someone such as these people could have wound up in prison. Absolutely. And what good would that have done anybody? None. And interestingly enough, and I always like, anytime the term prisoner jail comes up, I always like to tell everybody listening that first off, we have the largest prison population on the planet. Right. We have the most efficient prison pop 
on the planet. We have less escapes from our prisons than any other nation in the world. And lots of drugs in prisons. And exactly what I was going to get to. And we do not have, we do not have in the United States of America one drug-free prison. And if we can't keep drugs out of prison, who is ludicrous enough to put up a sign that says drug-free school? <laughs> Yes. Wow. <laughs> Peter, I just saw a blurb about these like safe jails that they're going to put for drug addicts. Did you hear about that? No, I haven't heard that one yet. Oh, I saw it on Twitter, uh, and uh, I should I should have brought it up, but it's interesting. Yeah, like special, specific jails or or prison cells for drug addicts. So they're not mixed in with the regular population that are nicer and safer and softer. <laughs> yeah, right. And, give you a and then you to have, bite on. <laughs> it, you know, it's, I always like I always like to mention two people that live in America. Uh, one is the alcoholic, and by alcoholic, I don't mean in recovery. I mean drinking everyday alcoholic. But this alcoholic does not drink and drive, and does not hurt other people or other people's property. And I ask people when I mention this. What do we do to that person? And the answer is nothing. Yeah. Nothing. And what do we do for that person? People usually say to me, nothing, and I go, oh, wait a minute. First off, we provide them treatment on demand if they want it. Absolutely. Anybody can walk into an AA meeting. You don't have to say I'm a criminal first. You're just a, an alcoholic. <laughs> and secondly, we guarantee, and second and third, we guarantee them, first off, a purity of product. So you know when you're buying that product what's in it and who to sue if it's wrong. And two and three, we provide them with a safe place to purchase and use the product in. Licensed taverns, liquor stores, we regulate the marketplace. Then the other American citizen I want that's you to think about is the, is the heroin addict. And I use the heroin addict because that's usually the one that everybody's the most fearful of out there. And But this heroin addict, like my alcoholic, does not use and drive and does not hurt other people or other people's property. What do we do to them? Well, if we catch them, we arrest them. And we hang a felony conviction on their record that stays with them, not like their recovery, which doesn't have to show up in a job interview, but stays with them for every job interview they go for again. And then we throw them into a prison system where we don't really have enough money to pay for treatment because, you know, we had to build all these prisons because we got all these prisoners, and roughly half of those cells are filled by nonviolent drug offenders. And my question is to people, why do we treat these people different? Because we start out by saying what we're trying to do is help them. And if I'm the heroin addict, I'm going to tell you, if you want to help me, why don't you help me like you're helping the alcoholic? Why don't you give me treatment on demand? Why don't you give me a purity of product? Or why don't you give me a safe place to purchase and use in? And then you can judge my behavior. But when you create this uneven environment, then don't call me a, a scumbag on top of it. It's not fair. You don't do that to the alcoholic. Well, the history of drug use and drug enforcement is marked by two things. One, um, religious zealotry, yep. and secondarily, racism. Yep, um, absolutely. Pretty much every drug was made illegal under some racist pretense. In fact, even alcohol, part of it was racial. Because that was part of the Protestant Reformation of the late 1800s, early 1900s in this country. And there was two groups of people they didn't like. And that was Catholics and Jews. And who and can blame them? And, 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 <laughs> and pouring into Ellis Island was a lot of Italian and Irish Catholics and a lot of Western European Jews at the beginning of the 20th century. And look who were the gangsters of alcohol prohibition. You got it. People actually don't know that there was a prohibition against uh, alcohol in England for a little while. There was a huge... And tea. 
Uh, yeah, and tea, uh, but, but particularly alcohol, uh, when there was a gin explosion in the 1800s, mm-hmm. and uh, gin had become very popular, and they actually, there was, everybody should sit around drinking all day, so they had to crack down for a while. Well, that's the background of how they, how they got these strange pub laws in terms of opening and closing at various times, like it was going to cure the problem. Right, right exactly. <laughs> you can't use for the next 45 minutes. Well, you got to keep your, you know, your workforce working, so. Well, that's it. That w- they were making it so they couldn't drink during the working day. Yes. You know, we also, we also have to learn from our neighbor, Canada, when we do get to a legalized, regulated marketplace, we've got to be careful how we do the regulation. Because about 10 years ago up in Canada, they decided to deal with their tobacco problem by raising the price to almost $10 a pack. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden... And all nice the, pictures on the cigarette packs. <laughs> right. And all of a sudden, surprisingly... Black market. All of a sudden, the black market, a gray market, popped up. Mm. And there was smuggling all along the border. And I, I heard one, one news interview said that, but this is unusual. You know, we used to have a problem with peer pressure in schools for kids to get other kids to smoke. Now we have kids marketing cigarettes to kids at <laughs> the school. Okay? This is how Al-Qaeda was raising money. Exactly. So you, what you have to do is you have to, I tell people what you want to do is you, you have to stay away from the edge of the cliff of prohibition. You want to bring your regulation as close to the edge of the cliff as you can get without taking the fatal step over the side. Because, uh, see, an honest person will pay 5 or $6 a pack for cigarettes, but an honest person will continue to pay 7 or $8 a pack if the only way they can buy them is illegally. They'll buy them from an illegal marketer. Absolutely. And you don't want to create that marketplace. And what a sane society does is... Ra- I was up in Vermont um, doing a Rotary Club a few years ago. And uh, in Vermont, I, I'm talking to the Rotary Club, and I thought I'd give them a little comparison. I said, you know, I'll tell you a stupid human behavior, and I don't know why we allow it. I said, do you know that there are human beings that when they see a tall, icy mountain, the first thought that comes into their head is, gee, I ought to climb up on top of that mountain and then tie two slippery boards to my feet and push myself off the edge. Okay? That's no, actually Amy. That's insane. Wait a minute, that's, that's in- an Olympic sport. That's, in- that's insane behavior. People get killed. People get killed every year doing that. People Only get Gentile crippled. ski. Right. <laughs> People get crippled every year doing that. I said, we ought to ban it. And then I looked at, and this is in Vermont, where they make a nice living off of it. <laughs> and I said, we ought to ban it. And then I paused for a second, and I said, or think of what would happen if we banned it. The people that wanted to do it would still do it. But they wouldn't do it on groomed slopes where we had safety people nearby. And you know what? I bet you more people would die, and I bet you more people would be crippled if we banned it than we do if we just regulate it. So you accept the behavior, you regulate it, and you don't allow people to hurt other people or other people's property. That's against the law. I don't care what you're high on, whether it's God or drugs. If you hurt other people or other people's property, you go to jail. On the other hand, if you're screwing up your own life, that's for your family and your friends to deal with. It isn't for the criminal justice system. Then again, we do have too many people, so maybe we need more things <laughs> that kill people, especially yeah. ones that are dumb enough to slide down a mountain. Yeah, I mean, thin the herd, thin the herd a little bit. I don't know if you're, you may be familiar with what happened in England with the fellow who they got, the professor who was hired to be the drug policy advisor for the English government. I missed that one. And uh, they asked his opinion, and uh, he told them, <laughs> which is basically what you're saying. Right. Uh, he wrote an article 
in the uh, well, like the Journal of Addiction Studies, and they published this on equestry, equesty, and he had I mean, it was just laid out like a regular addiction article on how many people were using equesty, the a number of brain damage, and all these things. You talk about ecstasy? No, this is the point. You talk about horse riding? Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> and when you get to the end of the article, you realize like, he's talking about so people riding horses. <laughs> many more and die it, from that than. And yeah, and more people were brain damaged, <laughs> yeah. dead, and injured from riding horses than from ecstasy or LSD or any of these other things. Exactly. And both they were mad at him and says, hey, you asked my advice. Right. I'm an expert. I'm telling you. He said, we don't want to hear that. Do you know how hard it is to snort a horse? <laughs> <laughs> Depends what kind of horse you're talking about. They call heroin horse because uh, it's a brand name, you know, from Bayer. It's actually yep. heroin yeah, is a brand name for uh, veterinarian grade morphine. Wow. Well, we we all have. In fact, I just got an email from a friend of mine that showed me a whole list of ads from the late 1800s, early 1900s for cocaine and heroin. Oh yeah. They were they were and, and the one I love is this Coca Cola. I, I, I'm not giving you any news here. You used to have cocaine. In yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. That's why it's Coca Cola. Yeah. But here, but here is the thing that we all forget. What did they put in the cocaine when, or in the Coca-Cola when they took the cocaine out? Caffeine. Exactly, because the people still wanted to get a little buzz from the Coca-Cola, yeah. so they just moved to a different drug. <laughs> so that isn't a natural byproduct of the cola bean. That's something they added. I was I did a deal for uh, Sin Entertainment, which is Simon LeBond's record label. And this was like one of my other careers, but I went out to Tokyo, where the label's based, and they actually have at the end of every pharmacy this little at the end of this aisle all these little vials of amphetamines, which mm -hmm. are, which mimic uh, the meth vials. That they used to hand out during World War II because they dosed the entire population yes. so they wouldn't eat and they would work all day. <laughs> and so, But the older Sorry. people still want to have like these vials, but they can't sell meth anymore. So you take these things and it's just like chock full of every kind of legal stimulant you can imagine <laughs> in a little vial. So I took one of these, I snapped the top off, I took it, I shook for like two days. <laughs> right? I'm like drinking beer desperately just to stop like having diarrhea. I'm like, my God, what is in this thing? You yeah, know? but we're doing these power drinks now, which are very close Those to what you're talking seizures. about. You know what? Yeah. People are having seizures are from having those. Seizures. Not right. even just retard epileptics. Like Five myself, hours of, you know? quote, energy, end of right. quote. I had, no, no, no. I had two rock stars and two Diet Cokes, and I didn't recognize anyone who was calling me on my phone. <laughs> and I went, and I went, and I had a grandma seizure. And I can't drink those anymore. And there was actually uh, lots of articles of people who drink, like, a, like a Sobe or whatever, and they'll, bam, they have a, a grandma seizure. It's all the taurine. It's too much taurine and scary too much stuff. caffeine. Yeah, it's really scary. What what fun. I mean, there's so many ways to entertain yourself, <laughs> <laughs> I have actually known people who liked seizures. I mean, I, I, I only have the petite I balls. beg your pardon? <laughs> but no, I have known people who really enjoy them. It's the guy on top of the woman that's having one, right? Oh, wow, wow, wow. No, 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 no. For me, you know, seriously, I don't feel mine coming, and I developed them in my mid-30s. I mean, it's really late onset. Really late yeah. onset. I mean, one seizure is really one too many. Yeah, it really causes well, some brain, brain damage. damage. I mean, I've, I've literally, I mean, I lost my license for a couple of years, and I'll just face plant. You know, and some jackass was like, oh, she's having a seizure. Don't let her bite her tongue. Put a spoon in her mouth. Right? And I broke two teeth. It's like, put a spoon in my mouth. How about a wallet? It cost me a thousand bucks. Dude, that's like, medi <laughs> what medieval medical school did you go to? Are you going to put leeches on me, too? I, you know? I mean, literally, I ended up, you know, breaking teeth and getting stitches and blah, blah. It's scary. Well, they're really supposed scary. to put a, a wood stick in your mouth, not You're not metal. supposed to put anything. Yeah, You're supposed to just... I had... 
when I first got on the PD, I had a doctor tell me, if you have somebody with a seizure, what you do is kneel down at their head, yeah. take yeah. the back of their head in your hands, get straighten their neck out as much as you can, mm. and just sit there and wait there until the go. seizure passes. There you go. Wow. That, the you biggest know? thing is head injury. That's how I'm mean, really, you know, yeah. I opened yeah. my head up once. I woke up and I was at Cedar sinai having my head sewn closed. I thought, oh, good. That's going to fuck up my haircut. You know what I mean? <laughs> 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 Vanity about new, first. Right? Everyone's like, oh, I love your new shaggy do. Yeah? You like the brain surgery haircut? It's good, isn't it? <laughs> so no, nobody thought we were, they were going to be getting some medical advice when they called into the show. <laughs> <laughs> the people that I know that have gone clean um, off really hard drugs it's just you burn out you can't yep. you can't have a lifestyle it wasn't necessarily you know prison that got them clean I know a couple people who they'll stay clean in prison but as soon as they get out they get loaded but it's just you can't really you know conduct either you, you fall apart physically and you get infections and that kind of stuff or you just can't deal know, with going the, yeah well, I mean, one and, the, then, and then it all depends on the drug too because when the Swiss when the Swiss started their heroin maintenance program over in Switzerland, one of the things they saw was a 40% increase in the employment rate amongst the addicts that were being served by this program. That's amazing. Because heroin is a different drug. Yes. You, you shoot up, you nod for about an hour, an hour and a half, and then you're normal yeah. for, you know, six or seven hours. You can go have a job, you can go do anything you want to do, and then you shoot up again and you nod for an hour and an hour like and a half. And actually, yeah. most of the well, negative health side effects from uh, legal street drugs are because of the things they're cut with. Exactly. Oh, there, and, and there is a big problem. I, while I was living in Las Vegas, I used to say that the, the crack uh, addicts in Vegas weren't really crack addicts. They were gambling addicts. They were gambling that the next time they bought it, it would be real. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was right. going to say there were baby laxatives. Yeah. Oh yeah, maybe like some addicts. Vitamin B addicts with I can't the, poo without my without my crack. Yeah. Is that? Never well, Amy, Amy mentioned something before about you, you, you. It's that old thing: you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. Absolutely. You know? yeah. And 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 what always amazes me is when people when there's an overdose and somebody will say, "Well, why would they overdose?" And people don't intentionally yeah. overdose. Yeah. It's because they don't know the dosage. One day you buy it off the street, ten percent. The next yeah, day it's right. fifteen. The strength is always different. And the other thing is. I read an interesting article about this. There is a theory uh, advanced by one doctor that people do not die of heroin overdoses. What they die from is that they drink with it. Yeah, right. that we're doing a big disservice. Really? Yes. That's true of yeah, all 58 percent of all overdoses. I hear I'm the stack guy. Fifty-eight percent of all <laughs> overdoses are actually from a mixture of two drugs or more. And if that, if people were educated, that okay, if you're going to shoot heroin, don't drink. No. I, really? well, no. I lost a lot of friends just because of that. It was it was not wasn't heroin. One is cocaine and then the liquor and then up and down and yeah. up and down and into the psych ward. Never mix them. <laughs> well, you know, to, 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 to get back to the main leap point on this stuff, they did a study in New York City, and I think this sums up our issue at LEAP pretty well, on drug-related violence. They looked at hospital admissions. They looked at, you know, arrests, everything they could find for a whole year, drug-related violence. And at the end of the report, they said 75% of the drug-related violence in New York City during that year was marketplace disputes. Yep. Mm. 
Okay, now 25% was people being high on drugs and hurting somebody else or whatever, and that we have to deal with. But 75% of the violence was due to the policy that's in effect. And that we can change, and we have to start talking that, about that, that issue. That correlates with the uh, with our marriage, my marriage to Amy, because seventy five percent of our disputes have to do with her buying fur clothes or not. Twenty five percent have to do with dirtiness and cleanliness. Exactly. So. Well, we're learning everything today. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Are you going to take? That? By the way, Don Waldman is the world's greatest and most famous divorce attorney. I just thought I'd let you know, but I don't know. Thanks. Either one of you can afford it. <laughs> Jesse, he got, out of, he got out of the criminal law and thought he'd go to something more entertaining. Right. Now I deal with real criminals. <laughs> Should I worry if my wife only records on the DVR like Snapped and Dateline How to Kill Your Spouse? I'm just fascinated by it. I'm, fa- I was I'm not on planning. I'm not learning. Week. I already, you know. Oh, you were? Really? Yeah, I was on Snapped. Uh, oh, we did that. Were you really? Yeah. Oh, my God. I love wow. that show. Well, you'll see me. I'm wearing the same dark shirt and same red tie every time they show the episode. It's the one about Rhonda Glover, my new book, Fatal So Beauty. if I die, anybody out there listening, oh, you know stop, who you look for. Stop. <laughs> stop. <laughs> Antifreeze in the orange juice. I already got it, dude. <laughs> we're, we're getting near the end of the hour. Let me do a quick plug. Please do. Okay, uh, for anybody listening, if you want to learn more about LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, you can go to leap.cc or com. Or the easiest ways, if you type the word LEAP, L-E-A-P, into Google, we're the first thing that pops up, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And take a look at the website, and uh, anybody that wants to join can join us. The only people that speak for LEAP come from law enforcement. Yeah, say hello to Norm Stamper for us. Oh, yeah. In fact, isn't that an interesting situation? Seattle produced two, two chiefs, their last two chiefs of police, one of them is Norm Stamper, who's a speaker for LEAP and mm-hmm. talks about legalizing drugs, and the other one is Kilikowski, who's the drug czar. Yeah, no, uh, wow. Norm just... said he wanted to go have a chat with him. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Quotes are on chat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, I've got to give you a little bit of a compliment. You know, we, we post uh, all these shows on uh, Police Pulse. Okay. And, uh, uh, of course, I promoted the previous time you were on. And a uh, guy sent me a message. Of course, he's all law enforcement personnel. He says, thank you so much. He says, it reactivated me as a uh, former police officer. I used to go out and do things for Leap years ago, and then I fell out of it. He says, I listened to Peter. He says, nice. and I'm, I'm back into it again. Nice. Well, good. Good, 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 good. We need as much as we can get. This is it. You know, one of the, uh, we're getting near the end of this, but one of the things that I do with my presentation is I mention other things that we have done as a society, and I look into the audience, and I like to say, and Amy, you can steal this if you want to. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, like, I look into the audience, and I say, I want to thank all the women that are here today for representing a group of people who studied real hard, and finally, by 1920, became intelligent enough to vote. And and, and then I wait for the reaction And then I say Now obviously as my lovely wife says I'm being feces about this (laughs) Wow But But For 150 years Women didn't have the right to vote in this country And that didn't become a bad idea In 1920 That was always a bad idea But it took us 150 years To educate the public to the stupidity of it And this is the same With this prohibition stuff This is an educational process And we have to get people to see this isn't about the drugs This is about the policy
policy. Once we deal with the policy, then we have to deal with the drug problem in our society. Well, you know, Peter, I was a keynote speaker up at a conference in uh, Moses Lake, and the first thing I said to anyone in the audience, who would like to be more forgiving? Of course, yes. all these people raised their hand. And I said, sir, I'm happy you raised your hand because I just keyed your car and I'm sleeping with your wife. <laughs> <laughs> the point being, they all look at me shocked. I right? can't believe you're alive. <laughs> I said, you know, if you see, in order to be more forgiving, you have to have something to forgive. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and it hadn't occurred to them. If you want to be more patient, go stand in the longest line in the supermarket. <laughs> you know? Let's have some, some basic thought here. Now, the only thing that, that concerns me is I just read a, a study that shows that facts don't impress people much anymore, that people will have an opinion, and let's say I believe something that isn't true, and someone brings me the factual information, I'll go, BS! Right. And well, look, actually, at the birth, look at the birth of Oh, I know, it's insane. Not to, I know. Not to, yeah, I know. Hold on, not to interrupt or nothing. However, um, it's still simply an opinion that a woman having the right to vote is a good idea. idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's our producer. That's our producer. You can always count Amy, on him. before we run out of time, where can we see you doing your stand-up? Well, I'm going to be at the Comedy Store this week. I'm going to be at the Ice House. I'm doing a fundraiser for uh, domestic violence and uh, breast cancer. Uh, you can go to www.amydresner.com, D-R-E-S-N-E-R.com. And then uh, I'm going on tour. I'm going on tour with Thelen O'Reilly and Ian Hart. We were doing Laughs Without Liquor. Yeah, we're here's a stand-up true. comic was arrested 76 times. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, not for his act either. Yeah, Before. right? <laughs> Ellen's uh, been on the show. We're going to San Francisco and Portland and uh, Atlanta and Key West, and it's a great show. And also we donate half our proceeds to a local uh, treatment program. Well, that's awfully sweet of you. I know. It's and way too generous. Based on the last show, I saw the, really uh, the, the rehab probably got about $4.20. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Peter, it's always great having you on the show. Really? Well, it's a joy to do it. I enjoy it. Now I can go back and figure out what happened during the NASCAR race today. That I, oh, it's, okay. it's waiting for me on the DVR. Oh, Somebody God. won. God bless the DVR. <laughs> it's, it's a pleasure, gentlemen. I'll say goodbye. Okay, Thank you very bye much, bye, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Well, another one. Bye. Yeah, that was great. Amy Dresner, world-famous uh, comic. Thank you for being here. Vastly entertaining. And her beloved, formerly 300-pound husband. <laughs> Boy, she has worn you down to just a shell of your former self. <laughs> Yeah, she's ravaged you tremendously. I know, it's terrible. <laughs> Somebody Magic. send me a sandwich. <laughs> I've seen pictures of people in sandwiches before. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Okay, enough of that. We're going to strap on some entertainment with Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence. Coming up in mere moments on the standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed broadcast industry. Oh.